Great God in heaven, we come before you as, as humbly as we know how, God. Asking that in these moments, that in spite of a foolish and frail preacher, Lord, that you would speak your truth. That, Father, you would shut my mouth to any of my own thoughts, my own words, or my own imagination. But that, God, you would speak and speak boldly through me, Father. That I might be an empty vessel for your word, Lord. Just a conduit for your truth and your word that has been passed down for generations. God, would you please bless the reading, the teaching, the proclamation of your holy word. Encourage us, Lord. Comfort us. Strengthen us. But, Lord, also convict us. Challenge us. Cause us to conform ourselves to Your Word, to look more and more like You, Jesus, every day, with every sermon that we hear. God, we love You so much. We need You during this time. We ask these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians there in the New Testament among the letters that Paul wrote to the various churches that he planted or had special connections with, relationships with. If you'll remember the General Electric Power Company, that'll help you find Philippians in there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the General Electric Power Company. You'll find Philippians. We are in chapter 2. Once again, we will be reading from verses 12 through verses 30. Verses 12 through 30 of Philippians Chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back right in front of you. Feel free to use that this morning and even take it with you. If you don't have a Bible at home, that's our gift to you. We've got more, I promise. Um, if you have your own copy, if you're accessing on your phone or your tablet, or if you want to follow along on the screen, however you're accessing the Word of the Lord this morning, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Holy Word? As we look together now, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests not those of jesus christ but you know timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we return to this passage this morning, you may remember, if you were with us last week, that our student pastor, Jake Wimberly, and you'll have to pardon me, these P's can be powerful at this particular particular pulpit microphone, so I will do my best to give you a little leeway there. So, last week, Jake was sharing with us from the Word of the Lord, focusing in on verses 12 and 13. One of the things that I hope that you took away was the incredible analogy that he shared with us about a child learning to walk. Now, maybe that didn't sit with you as well as it sat with me, but I happen to have a child at home who is learning to walk. And these verses are epitomized in what we do with Lily Grace all day Every day. She's got that wobble that Jake did. She's got the step, step, and then fall on her bottom. Step, step, then fall on her bottom. If I give her my two fingers and let her hold my hands like this and walk, she's got a little bit of an ape thing going on. She kind of walks like this going, right? But as long as she's holding on to me, she can step. But she's the one walking. She is the vessel that is moving. I am assisting and helping. I'm propping her up and holding her up. Can she take maybe one or two steps on her own? Yes. But does she need daddy to carry her where she wants to get and help lead her away from things she doesn't need to go to? I don't know if you all have had children in your life or maybe younger siblings, or maybe this was you when you were a child, but we've reached the fort stage. What I mean by the fort stage is our living room has become a fort. All right? It is all about defending the dangerous. We lock cabinets. We put toys in particular positions so that the living room is blocked off. And I want you to know that she is already a genius escape artist. All right? The other day I thought I had her because I had one of those standing toys that you put up and she props herself up on the toy and plays. But she still found a way to go underneath and crawl. I didn't think she could fit. It was too small of a gap. But you know what? She laid down and she belly crawled like a marine and she escaped the fort and she was out once again. Folks, this is our relationship with Christ. We're learning to walk. We're learning what is dangerous. We're learning what is within our boundaries and without of our boundaries. And we're learning where God is trying to lead us and take us. But something within us draws us where we're not supposed to be. Something about our sin nature wants us to walk outside of those boundaries. And so, yes, we are called to work out our salvation, to obey in God's presence and even in Christ's absence. It is God who, at the same time that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one 
holding our hands. I love when Jason sings for us, I can't even walk without him holding my hands. I have to work out my salvation, but I can't take a step if God, if my Christ is not holding my hands and guiding me step by step where I need to go because I'm prone to wander and I feel it. And I I don't know if that describes you, but that's me. I, I feel that in the depths of my soul. So it ties in perfectly with where Paul is going in verse 14. So then do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you'll remember from earlier in chapters 1 and 2, Paul gives us a great example of what somebody who what somebody who is following Christ lives and looks like. We don't pursue our own selfish ambitions. We don't do things out of conceit, but we consider others more important than ourselves. As a part of that, it means living a life without grumbling. And I don't know about you guys, but this is a verse that strikes me to my heart because I am a professional grumbler and complainer. Is there anybody in the church this morning, all right, that is bold enough to say you will join me and you are a professional complainer and negative? Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Yes. Look, I am that guy that if you want to know what's wrong with something, you come and talk to me because I will give you five things just like that. My wife, one of the best things that my wife has done to help sanctify me, okay? My wife is helping me grow in my spiritual maturity is she will stop me and go, Nathan, you just said seven negative things and nothing positive has come out of your mouth. I go, really? Is that, I did that? That's me? I don't even know that I'm doing it, y'all. I mean, like, and I'm this hypercritical about myself and about everything. I am a perfectionist, and I can tell you spot on what is wrong with something. If you hear me saying positive things, you just know that that is my wife sanctifying me, helping me by the power of the Holy Spirit to focus on the positive, to focus on what is good in life. And listen, Paul writes this because not only does the church struggle with this, but Israel struggled with this throughout their history of leaving Egypt. Fourteen different times in Exodus and Numbers, we have accounts of all the people of Israel, about a million strong, 600,000 fighting men, men of fighting age. So if there's 600,000 men, it's easy and safe to say that we're at least at 1.2 million not counting the children and people not of fighting age. So a million strong wandering through the desert and 14 different times, all 1.2 million of them can agree on a few things, and that's that the situation is terrible. And we're going to complain about it, and we're going to go talk to Moses about how wretched and awful this is. Over and over again, they go to Moses and they say, Why'd you even get us out of Egypt, Moses? Things were better in Egypt. I mean, sure, they beat us every day, okay? Sure, we had to make bricks in the heat, but at least we had food to eat. Come on, Moses, you brought us out here in the desert to starve. And so they grumble and complain and go before the Lord. And then Moses turns and talks to the Lord, and the Lord gives them frosted flakes of heaven, all right? That is the general description of manna. They wake up, and there's these flaky things that are sugary and delicious on the ground, look kind of like bread, but they really are frosted flakes from heaven. Every single morning, they wake up, and there are frosted flakes out on the ground, just enough for everybody in their family for that day. God provides for them and gives them manna because they're hungry and they're complaining. And instead of stopping and going, oh, praise God, 
We don't have to hunt. We don't have to fish. We don't have to gather. We don't have to do anything. We just wake up in the morning and all the bread that we need is there for us. They respond just like Nathan responds. You know what? This bread is uh, nice and all, but it gets kind of old every day. I, I mean, what else is on the menu? Do we not have some sort of amuse-bouche or maybe an appetizer of some sort? I was hoping there would be a dessert. What in our entree? Where's the protein, Lord? I need, what, what proteins are on the menu this morning? And so they go to the Lord and they complain. We're tired of all this manna. You know, this magic bread you just make appear out of nowhere. We're sick of this stuff. Give us something else to eat. So the Lord makes quail that just run up to them ready to die, ready to offer themselves up for them to eat. Quail just appear out of nowhere, and now they have frosted flakes and quail over and over again. They drink water, and God brings water out of a rock for them. And then they complain that the water is bitter. It's, it's not enough that the Lord brought them water, but this water, there's just something bitter about it. I just, I don't know. It leaves leaves my mouth drier than when I started drinking. God, can you do something about that? They grumble, they gripe, they complain about everything. Listen, here's the epitome of it. For 40 years, they wander through the wilderness in the desert. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is addressing the new generation, giving them the charge to not be like the generation that just died over the 40 years. And Moses talks to the new generation. And look with me in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Moses is speaking to the new generation and he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, excuse me. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So listen, folks, they wandered around the desert, getting frosted flakes from heaven, having quail to eat all the time, always being provided for, having everything that they needed. And all the while, they have plundered Egypt. They went to their neighbor, and their neighbors gave them gold. So they have gold and provisions. And all of their clothing does not wear out or get tattered. Their shoes don't wear out. Not only do their shoes not wear out, they're as good as the first day because the shoes don't make their feet swell. Listen, if you stand on your feet all day long, you know how easy it is to burn through a pair of shoes just like that. And you know when those shoes are done because you come home and you got these weird bunions and corns and nasty things all over your feet and your feet hurt and you're begging your spouse, please just rub my feet, just rub my feet. And you take them out of that shoe and it's just an unholy odor just overtakes your spouse like, uh-uh, we'll go, get, go get you a pedicure. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for five. Whatever needs to happen. Go take care of those feet. That's how you know when your shoes are bad because your feet start to hurt like crazy and weird things start happening. Their feet never even got swollen. So there's, there's two ways to look at that. The way that they would look at it. The way that Nathan would look at it. 
Son, it's been 40 years. I ain't even never got a new pair of shoes. I've been wearing the same pair of shoes for 40 years, God. You ain't giving me nothing. I got the same stinking shoes. Everybody else around here got these nice Nikes going on. They got some New Balance. They got all these great Adidas and Reebok shoes. Look at all the new people with the new shoes. And here I am, 40-year-old shoes, Lord. Poor pitiful me. God, why ain't you taking care of me? I need some new shoes. And then you could say, my God in heaven, 40 years for a pair of shoes. Before I got lost in the desert, I, I, I couldn't even get a pair of shoes to go six months. You sustained me, God. You saved me. You, you preserved even my shoes. There were no holes in my clothes. I didn't have to go to the thrift store. I didn't have to go to the consignment shop. The words that Paul uses for grumbling and disputing in Philippians are the same words used in these 14 occurrences throughout Exodus and Numbers. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same Greek word in that and here. Paul is intentionally trying to draw their focus back to how Israel thought about God. Listen, my dad always tells this story, and I I honestly, in preparing this sermon, could not remember if I'd shared it before. But it's one of my favorite stories. It goes right along with the 40 years on the one pair of shoes. I've never gotten a new pair of shoes. There's a shoe company that decides they're going to open up operations in in a remote village in a remote country in Africa. And so they hire somebody specifically for this job. They train this person for six months. And they finally send the new sales representative who's going to set up operations in this remote country, in this remote village. And when he gets over there, he works for two weeks and he quits. And he calls the company back, get me out of here, I'm done. Nobody over here even knows what a pair of shoes is. How are we going to start a business over here? Ain't nobody wearing shoes. Nobody even knows what shoes are. Click, slams the phone, they send the plane to get him. Executives scratch their head, don't know what they're going to do, so they they say, well, let's just try again. So they get somebody else. They hire them, they train them for six more months. They've now invested at least a year into this project. They send him by plane to the remote village in the remote country, and he gets there, and two weeks go by, and the phone rings. And so the executives are really anxious when they pick that phone up. Yeah, John, how's how's it going? Send me everything you got. I need every shoe that you can make, and I need it yesterday. Do you understand? Nobody over here is wearing shoes. We're going to be millionaires. We're going to be rich. I'm going to sell everybody over here a pair of shoes because ain't nobody got them. This was brilliant. I don't know who thought of this, but we're about to be filthy, stinking rich, y'all. Send me every shoe you got. Folks, I, I know it's a silly story. I know it's silly to think about shoes that didn't wear out over 40 years. I know we hadn't made it past verse 14. But I'm that guy that goes to the remote country in the remote village that walks on the same pair of shoes for 40 years. And I want to look at God and go, what were you thinking? Folks, it should not be so. Paul is laying the groundwork for what he will talk about in chapter 4 about contentment. We live in a society where there's always somebody who has done it better. 
We live in a society where we are constantly bombarded over and over again with marketing campaigns about how things ought to be, about what you're missing in your life, about what you don't have that you need that will satisfy your soul and finally make you happy and stop seeing all of the negative and stop focusing on all of the bad stuff. This one new phone, this one new car, this one new truck, this new house, if you could just move in to this part of town, if you could just change this about your life, then let me tell you, you'd be content and you'd be happy. That's the message we are peppered with hundreds of times a day on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on every commercial, on every ad on YouTube. Everybody's trying to tell you, you don't have what you need and you're going to be dissatisfied and see the negative in everything until you get that one something that gives you contentment and satisfaction in your soul. And Paul says, be content in Christ and live a life without grumbling. You know, you don't grumble when you're focused on other people. You know, grumbling is caused by a selfish heart. That's why I stand before you this morning as a sinner, just like anybody else in this room, knowing that my heart is selfish. Knowing that I find what is wrong because I'm so focused on me and making me happy. But if I would have the attitude that we're told about in verses 3 and 4, the example we're given in Jesus Christ, the example that Paul gives starting in verse 19 about Timothy and Epaphroditus, these people who were willing to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, those were men who were content and satisfied with dying for Christ because they were content in this life. They were not grumblers. They were not the people that showed up to Paul's prison cell and went, Man, Paul, you ain't even got no bread for us. You you in prison, man. How are we supposed to stay with you? They sent us to you and said you were going to put us up. And we're going oh, we're under house arrest now. We're just going to lay on the floor. That's not what Epaphroditus and Timothy said when they showed up. They said, "Paul, you're alive. Paul, how can we help you? Look, here's what we brought to you from the church in Philippi." Folks, you can always find something negative in everything in life. I promise. I know because my mind usually sees it. But you can also find something positive in every single thing in life. God is at work in everything in our lives. God is working all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. And if we believe that, then we've got to find the good in everything that God is doing. We've got to understand that when we grumble and when we gripe and when we complain, we are sinning against God. We are focusing on ourselves and not others. Our lives are to be dedicated and sold out to Christ. And when we are sold out to Him, there's so much less that actually bothers us. Who cares what kind of house we live in? Who cares what's wrong with my car? Who cares how old my phone is? Who cares if I don't have the latest, the greatest, the newest, the best? Who cares if I could find 15 things wrong with this or that or the other? I'm here for Jesus. All that other stuff just doesn't matter. Maybe you gripe and grumble and complain because of where God has you in life. Because what God's allowing to happen in your life. Because of where God is leading you and what God is doing amongst you and your family. Listen, I just want to give you another example. 
This one is a little far-fetched, but bear with me. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. When you find yourself grumbling and complaining because of the way God made you, because of the place that God has positioned you, I want you to think back to a very familiar story, but I want to put a different spin on it, okay? Look with me in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah was a great king. King Uzziah was a symbol of power. The year that King Uzziah died was a year of uncertainty because they didn't know who was going to take the throne and how the kingdom would be led. So there was plenty of reason for panic and plenty of reason for people to look for where is our salvation going to come from? What will we do now that King Uzziah is dead? And this is the year in which God presents himself to the prophet Isaiah. And the train of his robe fills the temple. You know, old school style, the longer the train of your dress or your robe, the more royal, the more fancy you are. If a bride comes in and her train drags all the way back to the back door there and she stands at the altar, then that must be somebody of honor, of prestige. At the time of the writing, that is the understanding of the train of a robe or a dress. And God's train from his robe literally fills the entire temple. Above him stood the seraphim, the, literally the burning ones. These are flaming messengers, angels. Each had six wings, with two that covered their face, with two that covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. We see, we get a glimpse of Isaiah as he sees the Lord himself. In John chapter 12 we even get an illusion that maybe this was Christ on the throne, that Isaiah got a pre, pre-incarnate glimpse of Christ. That means Christ before he was born. This could have been Jesus sitting on the throne. And Isaiah gets to see him. But around him, there are these burning ones. Folks, I just want you to think about these seraphim for just a second. Think about how majestic and powerful they must be. They are called the burning ones, so I can only assume that they're consumed in fire and they look like little fireballs. These are not fat little cherubim baby angels with wings that look like they can't hold them up, all right? These are angelic beings of power and fire and might. They have six wings, and God has designated them to fly around him covering their eyes, covering their feet. Cover their eyes because God can't be beheld face to face. They cover their feet as a sign of humility. And they fly around the Lord all day long just crying, Holy, holy, holy. 
for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Now, if you were one of these burning ones, God designed you, and you're on fire, and you got power, and you got six wings, and you're thinking, I am going to lead the army that is going to throw Satan and his forces back into the fiery pit. I am going to be on the battlefield. This is going to be great. Look at me. I'm covered in fire. I have six wings. God has made me for battle. God has made me to use me for incredible things. And God says, yeah, that's all good and true, but I just want you to fly around me. I just and don't don't even use all your wings, okay? Really, just use two of them, all right? Because you can't look at me. So I want you to fly around blind with your feet covered, and I just want you to holler at me all day long. Holy, 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 holy. Your turn. Holy, holy, holy. All right. Holy, holy, holy. I say holy. You say holy. Holy. Hey, all day long, every day. Give me an H, H, give me an O, O, give me an L, L, give me a Y. What's that spell? Holy! All day, every day. They gotta come up with variations because that's all they say. That's all they do. And every time we talk about these angels, we think about these angels in such a wonderful, lofty, like, what an honor to call holy, holy, holy to the Lord all the time. You mean to tell me if all you said was holy, 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 all day long, every day, all day, every day, you wouldn't get tired of it? If you had the capacity to fight and subdue the forces of evil, you mean to tell me you wouldn't ever look at God and go, God, what were you thinking? What would you design me like this for? All I'm doing is calling out holy. You don't want me to go slay any demons? You don't want me to go fight any bad guys? You don't want me to use all my wings? You don't want me to spread out? You don't want me to light up something on fire? No. I made you for this purpose. Fly. Call out holy, holy, holy. Call to one another. They don't ever complain. They don't ever speak back to the Lord. They don't ever grumble. They don't ever gripe. They don't ever have a negative word to say. They genuinely are honored to never say anything other than holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These angels who are powerful and could do so much else in life, these angels are purely content at the opportunity to fly around the throne and cry out to all that can hear that our God, is the Lord of hosts, and He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. And they never get tired of He is holy. He is holy because it's just as true the first time as the last time they said it. And there's not a gripe, there's not a grumble, there's not a complaint. And maybe God has called you to something that you feel is beneath you in your life. I want you to find contentment. I need to find contentment in a life that just cries out nothing more than holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And I ought to be honored at the opportunity to say that for the rest of my life. I ought to be willing like Paul to be poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice of someone else's faith. Paul doesn't care if his whole life is spent and one person in the church at Philippi comes to know Jesus. It's worth it to him. There is nothing that is beneath somebody whose whole contentment is wrapped up in Christ. Even for the angels who were tasked to fly and say holy, holy, holy. They counted an honor. They don't gripe. They don't grumble. They don't complain. They don't speak back to God and say what were you thinking? How come you made me like this? How come you gave me this job? How come I'm doing this in life? Folks, I beg you, 
find contentment in Christ. Live a life where we cry out with everything that we say and everything that we do. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And when we're so captivated by His glory, we won't mind flying in the same circle saying the same three words for all eternity. He's that incredible. Do you serve Him and worship Him in that way? Are you content in just Him? If you had nothing else, do you still find something wrong in everything that you see? Or are we going to be people who are content in our Savior, focused on Him, crying out to Him with all of our life, with all of our soul? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your patience with us. Lord, thank you that you love us in spite of our grumbling, in spite of our complaining. God, we need your forgiveness once again. Lord, you you are so good and so holy that our attention should be lost in how good you are. Instead, Father, we are so frequently a people much like the Israelites who can only see the things that we don't have. Father, help us to focus on who you are and what you've blessed us with so that it eclipses our thoughts of what we don't have and what's wrong in our lives and in this world. Let us be like the angels who are content to fly around your throne calling out to you for all eternity that you are holy. May that characterize our lives as well. Lord, we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. For His sake that we pray. Amen. Church, I I would invite you to take just a few moments for us to confess our sin and have a chance to respond and prepare our hearts before we approach the Lord's Supper table. Folks, I want you to, to be aware of what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If we are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not partake of this table. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you believe in Jesus and are following Him, whether you're a member here at this church or not, you're welcome at this table. But if you don't know Christ, I'm begging you to pass the plate. There'll be no judgment. There'll be no gossip. There'll be no murmuring under the breath. But for your own sake, do not eat or drink judgment on yourself. In the same way, if you, like me, struggle with negativity or some other sin in your life, some other grumbling or complaining or something else entirely, do not approach the Lord's table without first making things right with the Lord, without first repenting and begging for forgiveness from our God. The Lord's Supper is not just juice and crackers. It is a deep, spiritual, ancient tradition that we still worship through today that is powerful in many ways 
not to be taken lightly. And so that's what these next few moments will be. I would ask that we say a confession to the Lord together. And then in your own heart, whatever you need to do, come to these steps, stand where you are, however you need to respond to the Lord. I pray that you get your heart right and prepared before you partake of the bread and the juice. Would you recite this with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.